Hello, this is Mimi A. And hello, I'm Hung Black. And uh, we are the MSG Pod, which this week stands for Mildly Salacious Gossip. Although I have to admit we don't have any for you because we don't want to get sued. (laughs) (laughs) By our potentially two listeners this week. But we'll see how it goes. (laughs) We'll have a... We'll have more than two okay. listeners. Um, but yeah, if you are so if you are it, listening and you're enjoying it in the first five seconds, you can sort of email us and let us know that you're enjoying <laughs> it. Put a review. Put a five you're, pro- star review. you're probably one of our friends. You're probably one of our friends. So just as a bit of background, the last time Hung and I saw each other in real life was a few weeks ago, um, and that was basically in between lockdown lifting and the rule of six coming in in the UK. We have both been living the pandemic life as everyone else has in the world in the whole in the whole flipping universe. Um, but it has been slightly different. Oh, I thought I had Corona. I actually thought I had COVID this week. Oh, yes, yes. You, you had the test. So I've not, I've not had this. Explain <laughs> what the test is like. Uh, my daughter had a, developed a continuous cough, so much so that we thought uh, that she should get tested. And then I developed a continuous cough. So we went and got tested uh, this week. And then it came back negative, so it's all okay. And you, you managed um, to get a test quite quickly didn't you yeah which which i wasn't kind of hopeful for because when, when we had a previous scare a couple of weeks ago there weren't any tests available but this time it was actually relatively um straightforward i downloaded the track and trace app um and then you sort of just press uh, your symptoms and then if it's one of the three symptoms that that's listed then it advises you to get a test and then you just put in your postcode and it comes back with options for where you are in in london well for us in london and uh a choice of walk-in or drive-in, drive-by. Drive-through. Drive-through, drive-through, drive-in, drive-by. dangerous. Drive-through testing. And actually, when you look at how what drive-through uh, testing involves, you have to, you know, swab your kids at the back of the car, which is actually quite awkward. What do they do? Do they just ask you to wind down your window and throw the kit in? Or I think so. But, like, what we did was we parked up and then we walked through. And what I didn't realise was that you actually have to swab yourself. So I just thought, I just assumed there'd be like a member of staff in a hazmat. What, like all dressed up now. Yeah, all dressed up. Yeah, so I thought it'd be like. And then well, they'd, they'd have to change PPE you. for each person, wouldn't they, probably? Yeah, and I didn't, I just thought it hadn't occurred to me that we had to swab ourselves. Right. Um, so, and, so you're um, having to poke this thing up your, up your nose? Yeah, and I and I, I think I went too far. I was like, I think I've, I think I've damaged my, well, I don't know what membrane it's called, nasal membrane. I feel like oh, I could, might have stabbed myself in the brain or, you know, like a bit, bit in total recall. We yes. stick it up really high. Yeah, yeah. I kind of, kind of did that to myself. But the other thing is as well, for if you're a grown-up, you have to swab your tonsils first. So oh you're swabbing your tonsils and trying not to choke on your tonsils, and you use the same swab and then stick it up your nostril. The same and give swab? It a, yeah, and then give it a good swizzle, Oh, which is a little bit gross. So. And then um, what, you put it in like a little And then you put it in bag. the little kind of whatever, the little test tube thing, and then right. seal it up, and then you hand it back. But for the kids, you just stuck it up their nose. How quickly did the results come back then? I think their aim is 48 hours, but ours came back within 24 hours. Okay. Yeah. Okay, so we're all, all clear, which all means... Clear. That... We're all clear, we're all back to, back to work, yeah. Okay, yeah, back to work, back to school. Okay, that's yeah. good. It's all very confusing, I have to say. Um, so like that, my kids' school, they're not very clear about what happens if you've got two children at the school, you know, the whole kind of... I mean, everyone's in bubbles. Um, I'm, I'm not sure about what your children's doing, but they're, they're bubbling like different classes in different years. The idea being that if one child gets COVID, the whole bubble goes, but the rest of the school doesn't have to close down. Yeah, um, except it doesn't make sense when you have siblings. No, it doesn't. I mean, that's the thing. Every morning I'm taking my kids to school and theoretically there's like a, a, 
the gap in the drop-off. And then in the afternoon when I pick them up, um, there's like a 15, 20 minute gap again. Um, and the idea was that, you know, you pick the first child up and then you go away and, you know, you're not lingering. But, the, the, you know, what actually happens is that I'm there with my four-year-old son waiting for his big sister to come out of class and he's like licking lampposts and <laughs> kind of pun- punching other children and getting punched back. And it's great because it's like everyone's just loitering. And, and also the mask take-up, it's just awful. Like the um, the head teacher of the school originally emailed saying if you're doing the pick up and drop off please socially distance and please can you wear masks and it's something like i don't know 30 percent like only a third of parents are bothering to wear masks and so they're all doing their normal clustering together all doing their normal chatting kind of rubbing shoulder to shoulder and i'm kind of going please don't come near me um it's all a bit terrifying so so you know as, as i said we're called the msg pod um which <laughs> I think every week is probably going to stand for something different. Um, but MSG is obviously the acronym for monosodium glutamate. Um, and it's something that we're both really big fans of. Um, and it's obviously people know that it's had a bad press. Um, we'll probably talk about this properly later on. But but that's just, just so you know, MSG does actually stand for monosodium glutamate. And you know, we love it. So... Yeah, but I, I don't. Yeah, we do. I do. I do like it. But you know, I like it as much as I like salt and pepper. You know, and so it's for me. It's just like another item in the seasoning rack. It is. You know, and I just if you, it's if been you know how to use it, it years, will make it? everything better. So MSG can also stand for make stuff good. So yeah, that's it. We're the make stuff good pod. Yeah, that's it. Um. Yes, what have you added MSG to this week? Though? What have I added MSG to do? I'm, I scrambled eggs. I find MSG actually is really good with eggs. It's, 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 yeah. It's, uh, I think I got that from you actually because I, I didn't really put MSG in eggs before. Ah, no. So, so in the, the, it's the Burmese thing to do. You just if you put it in an omelette, fried rice, um, scrambled eggs, it just, it just makes it eggier. And I mean that in a good way. I don't mean in a horrific way. So, so yeah. If, if, if the one thing you want to do, if you want to experiment with MSG and don't know what to do with it, just add a tiny dash to some eggs and you'll see the difference. What did you put MSG in? So actually, I had, I had double uh, I had double mejing, which is the Vietnamese that I know for MSG. Yeah. Um, so we had the Ajinomoto uh, chicken bouillon ah. and, and a little bit of a sprinkle of MSG as well with that. Amazing. So... I heard you caught up with your friend Tim Anderson earlier on this week. I did indeed. And we covered all sorts of topics. Although bear in mind that the interview was done before lockdown happened for the second time and before the US election. And we're going to play it for you now. So, Tim Anderson. A cookbook author, a chef. He owns the restaurant Namban. Um, A million years ago, he won MasterChef. Although you probably know him... (laughs) Much better now as one of the regular guests on Kitchen Cabinet on uh, BBC, is it Radio 2, 4? I actually can't remember. 4, I think. Thank you for joining us, Tim. Um, Thank you. You've written four books. And, and of course, uh, Vegan Japanese came out kind of just on the cusp of lockdown. Is that right? Yeah, like literally a week before. So, so what, what's it like um, launching a book in, on the cusp of a pandemic? What, what, how's it been? You know what? It's actually been really cool in a way because it's a, it's kind of a boom time for cookbooks and for home cooking in general. Um, I know you're always posting stuff that you're, uh, that people who bought your cookbook have cooked. And that's like a really cool feeling um, to see people uh, 
uh, yeah, making food from the recipes you've written. Um, and also in the case of like vegan Japanese and Japanese and, and all of them to a lesser extent, but like those books are often um, people cook from them having thought they couldn't cook Japanese food before. Which is really cool, and I think that like a lot of people, including myself, during lockdown, took it as an opportunity to cook sort of outside their box a bit more. Um, so like I was making all kinds of unusual foods, like not unusual, but like foods that I don't normally make. Like I, I made tacos a lot. Um, we made a Maltese meal once on the anniversary of our trip to Malta last year. Yeah, um, things like that. Like people are using were using food as escapism a lot, so they were cooking things that were a bit different from what they usually make, um, which I think for a lot of people included Japanese food. Obviously, you have a restaurant um, in Brixton, which is incredibly popular. Um, yep. And I've, you know, been lots of times. It was always my favorite place to go before I went to a gig at Brixton Academy. Um, um, and obviously, you know, the, the, the pandemic meant that for a while things were, were pretty rough. Um, yeah. And uh, then there was the Eat Out to Help Out scheme. Um, how helpful was that for you? That was great, actually. Well, okay, so we, we've got two sites. We've got uh, Nanban in Brixton, which is the original that opened in 2015. And then we've got one in uh, a food court run by Curb, Seven Dollars Market, near Covent Garden, that mm-hmm. opened last year. Uh, Brixton's bounced back really well. Um, obviously, we've got like all these new measures in place for social distancing and hygiene and stuff like that. Um, but we're, we're sort of, we're in a good place financially and it's like as busy kind of as it can be because it's a neighborhood restaurant. Like almost all of our customers are locals. Seven Dials is more of a struggle. It's picking up now. Um, but, uh, nobody lives there. When we opened at the beginning of August and it was just dead, like almost like a ghost town in central London. Um, now there's there's more people around and and the past couple okay. weekends have actually been really good um, but that also could be because we've just started we've introduced katsu curries <laughs> ah. um, to the menu so- we used to do all only ramen like that's what the kitchen's built for but sure. um, but people love katsu curry so, well, talk to so me about your katsu good. curry talk to me about your katsu curry is it is it right is, is it the way that i would think a katsu should be as in has it at it least is. got some panko on it yes <laughs> so for those of you who don't know um katsu curry is one of my big peeves not the dish but the way it's presented <laughs> or thought of in the uk um, and I know it is for you too, Mimi, we've talked it about is. it before, but because of the way the word katsu is misused. So katsu in Japanese is short for katsureto, which is the uh, Japanese version of cutlet. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's, it's the breaded fried thing uh, in, a, in a curry sauce, or on a curry sauce rather, usually. The curry is not katsu curry, it's not the sauce, that's just mm-hmm. Japanese curry sauce. Exactly, your classic it's just curry called, roux type. Right. <laughs> It's just called kare. Yeah. <laughs> and without the katsu, it ain't katsu curry. Exactly. But so I feel like sometimes the train has already left a station on this. Like I used to really fight this and say yeah. and, and get angry at people and, and explain, no, it's not katsu curry that's in the Greg's <laughs> katsu curry chicken bake or whatever. Or it's not katsu curry sauce that comes in a jar at Sainsbury's. That's just curry sauce. But that's the thing, right? It's not, you know, it's, it, the, the, the thing we're fighting against, it isn't independent restaurants. It isn't home cooks. You know, you guys do whatever you like. It's it's the chains. It's the, the conglomerates. It's the supermarkets that are just doing whatever the hell they like. So. 
if if somebody gets something like wrong about Japanese food or any kind of like Asian food, it's like mm-hmm. fine, and it can be corrected. Is the other thing, yeah. but like once once the supermarkets, once ASDA and Morrison's and Tesco and everybody mm-hmm. start selling something labeled katsu curry yeah. that's not katsu curry, then then it's it's over. It's game over. Then people have the wrong idea about what it is, and there's almost no going back. Yeah. Um, but I don't know. I'll, I'll tell you a story um, about years and years ago when my mother, she used to pronounce, and I think she probably still does pronounce sake as sake, which a lot of people do. And I would correct her and I'd say, no, 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 it's sake because I was like an obnoxious student of Japanese back then. <laughs> yeah. Um, and she sent me a link to the Merriam-Webster dictionary entry for sake saying that like it, it can also be pronounced sake. Like that was one of the official pronunciations. Right. And I was furious. So I actually <laughs> wrote, I wrote an email to the you, dictionary. You to, complained to a dictionary. I complained. Which I didn't really <laughs> know you could do. And what's even more amazing is that they wrote back. Two different oh, no. people wrote me back. One, oh, because I complained about the spelling. They said it could be spelled S-A-K-I. Oh, uh, that and I was like, no, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they wrote back and they said, look, um, this isn't a Japanese word. Like, we're not here defining a Japanese word. We're defining an English word right. borrowed from Japanese. Right. And they reference the same kind of situation with uh, other foreign loan words like um, pajamas, pajamas. Yeah. yeah, or sham- <laughs> champagne, right? Which are also. Um, I mean, the spelling is a totally kind of separate thing because it's transliterated anyway. They don't use yeah. Romaji or Roman script to write sake in Japanese mm-hmm. um, anyway. So, like, in a way, you can kind of spell it however you want, <laughs> or there's yeah. different systems for doing that. Um, but then the pronunciation, they said, look, all of these words are English words. Champagne, sauna, ski, they said. They're, it's not, it, it, we're not, this isn't about Japanese. This is about English. And it's like, <laughs> this okay, isn't about fine. you. <laughs> Right. It's like, fine. So maybe katsu curry in English parlance just is Japanese curry sauce and I have to deal with that. I have to accept it. No, we will not. Well, this is the thing because it still causes like confusion and frustration, especially for me as like a restaurateur and somebody who is um, trying to like teach Japanese food to people because a lot of people say, oh, um, I love katsu sauce. Yeah. It's like, like, what is that? What is yeah, that? <laughs> and, and, and they mean the curry sauce. And, and yeah. I'm like, no, katsu sauce is tonkatsu sauce, which is, of course, the Japanese brown sauce is... that you get on exactly. tonkatsu. <laughs> and so we bring it to the table and they're like, no, I, I wanted katsu sauce, meaning curry sauce. And like, that's where so like, we're at a, we're at <laughs> a, a bit a of an impasse. With... We're at an impasse. Right. I mean, it's funny, point... though, because, you know, when, when, every so often, because you know what, me, I, I have my rants about this, that, and the other. I, uh, yeah, katsu is a big one, but also I hate it when people say udon is ramen and vice versa. Um, oh, that's a whole other thing. Yeah, a whole other <laughs> thing. But, but the funny thing is, I've actually had, like, Italians say to me, oh, we feel your pain. We, you know, oh, we've been, yeah. We've been, we've been battling this for, for decades. So. <laughs> Sometimes I feel really bad for Italians because I feel like no, maybe nobody's food gets as bastardized so oh yeah for often sure. and all over the world <laughs> like for sure. the things that are done to pizza <laughs> uh must make many an italian there's weep. some crying <laughs> i think there's yeah. people crying so um you have your restaurant nambans. Um, I, yep. I, I guess you you wouldn't say it was a traditional Japanese restaurant because obviously you have your influences. Like the Brick the Brixton branch has the Brixton Market influences. The kind of yeah. Um, when so 
Nanban means Southern Barbarian, uh, which is what the Japanese called Europeans when they first arrived in uh, the 16th century. Mm -hmm. um, barbarian, because, well, that's obvious. They were barbaric. <laughs> <laughs> and the reason they're called Southern is because they arrived via the South China Seas. First of all, when I started off, we were I was doing pretty much food from the south of Japan. And also I wanted to focus on dishes that were of non-Japanese origin. Uh, ramen is probably the biggest one, which is, of course, a product Chinese. of yeah, Chinese um, influence. Mm -hmm. And it was considered a Chinese dish until not very long ago. Like it yeah. wasn't really fully ad adopted into Japanese sort of mainstream gastronomy. Um, even as recently as like 15 years ago when I first went to Japan to mm. do research as a student, uh, the curator of the Shinyokohama Ramen Museum told me, like, the reason there are so many variations, or one of the reasons why there's so many variations on ramen throughout the country is because Japanese people see it as something that's not theirs, like, right. so they can play around with it a bit more. I did a pop-up in, in Brixton, and it went really well, and the guy who owned that pub bought a place across the road and said, do you want to do it here? And I said, yeah, let's do it. And of course, Brixton being Brixton and having an amazing food culture of its own, it seemed really wrong to ignore that. The market's just amazing as a chef, like to explore and to, and they've got everything. Like it's known for Afro-Caribbean food culture, but it's got a bit of everything in there. And like this stuff is all just really cool. Um, so that's, we started to incorporate that into the food. And some of it just really made sense, like various African dried smoked fish and uh, shellfish Ooh, products. So like like <clears throat> bonito, you'd be using it yeah. that kind of way. You obviously you are you know you're not Japanese, um, no. <laughs> but you know Japanese stuff is your thing. And for example, if someone comes to your restaurant and they're expecting, you know, the the the, the real deal, does it make you feel yeah. a bit awkward? Or I mean, how yes. how do you feel? <laughs> uh, yeah, no, it really, um, it's something I think about a lot. So this is the thing. I got quite like deep into Japanese food culture. Um, mm. And what I kind of found is that because I, I, I studied regional specialties in particular, that's what I wrote my thesis on in college. Your, your what degree, I found, yeah. Yeah. And what I found was like Japanese food starts to kind of like unravel when you get to the fringes of it. Um, like everybody thinks of it as being like this monolithic thing that, that follows a very strict set of ancient traditions, but really it's sort of like, it, it's more complex than that. And, and what I found was that a lot of places in Japan or, or a lot of like types of Japanese food have a kind of almost anything goes approach. A, a good example is ramen where like it goes across the country and, and across the world as well and, and sort of soaks up local ingredients, local influences, and so for me, like opening Nanban uh, in Brixton, like it made sense. So like that's like where I, how I got to Nanban being weird, uh, Brixton whatever fusion. Um, but having said all this, like I know where I'm coming from, but I get that a lot of people won't, and a lot of people are going to be like, "This is not Japanese food," or worse, a lot of people are going to come and be like. Oh, this is Japanese food, <laughs> having just had like a curry goat dish, which is nothing like what you'd find in Japan. I, I took it for granted that people would get what we're doing, which a lot of people I don't. I think you give the people of this country a lot too much of a benefit of the doubt. <laughs> <laughs>
this is the other thing that gives me pause. Like, um, if a if a Japanese person comes to the restaurant, and I've yeah. had mixed re- mixed reviews, let's say from from Japanese people who come to it, because um, one of the sort of saddest failures I think on my part as a Japanese like restaurant operator yeah. is that I can't fulfill like um, uh, a feeling of nostalgia. What well, not like so <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Like if, if if a Japanese person or even just somebody who spent a lot of time in Japan, like me, comes into the restaurant and they eat yeah. the food, they'll be like, oh, this isn't what I remember. This isn't really what I wanted. Um, we do have these classics, but like, yeah, we, we also have things that are definitely not classics. Is it just a case of kind of being clearer about what your brand is? I know, I know you hate the idea of a brand. No, no, you're right, though. Like I've started to call us when, when asked... Uh, I've started to say we're, we're fusion, which sure. is not a word that I, I like because I feel like it got kind of sullied by a lot of kind of bad fusion concepts in the past. Ma- mainly of because it's usually considered kind of equivalent to Pan Asian, which is also not exactly the best of words. <laughs> exactly, um, and also because you know it's cliche now to say that all food is is fusion. So mm-hmm. it was a word that I always tried to avoid, but it does send a clear message that this is not. You know, it's shorthand, right? This is this is not your Oji-san's <laughs> <laughs> Japanese food. Like no. this is we're doing something a little bit different, which I think is the right message, and and it's something that I'm going to try to push out there more. Your mother-in-law is Japanese. What does she think of your cooking? Okay, so here's um, so my mother-in-law is Japanese. They're a Kyoto family. Mm-hmm. And they're quite traditional in their tastes. So okay. um, we've talked about like ramen in particular before. And like she doesn't like it. And her family didn't really eat it. Well, at all. Because like at all. They all do like udon, my wife included, which irks me. I love udon. <laughs> Udon's my favorite. Udon's okay. <laughs> um, like Japanese food does have, there's so many different types of it. Thing I think a lot of people here think, oh, everybody in Japan just eats sushi every day. Yep. <laughs> That's changing, but... But that's not the case, obviously. It's, it's a lot more complex than that. There's two things uh-huh. that sort of stand out in my mind about uh, my mother-in-law and my cooking. Yeah. And w- one is that she really thinks I do good tempura, which is, uh, like, that's makes not me feel easy. really good. Yeah, yeah, well, I don't always get it right, but every time I've cooked it for her, I guess I've locked out. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so there's that. But then also, uh, she makes some things that I just am never as good at and i don't really know why i've asked her for recipes i've tried to do it how she does uh two things are miso soup i don't i'm not quite as good at miso soup as her and again i don't really know why Uh (laughs) it's because she's she's not telling you the full recipe obviously (laughs) she's never actually given me a recipe for that one but um but I've, I've, I've studied her miso soup and I've like tried to do it the same way. Yeah. Uh, maybe it's the type of miso she's using. Um, but the other one is takikomi gohan, which is uh, uh, the, uh, basically like a, it's like a pea. The rice with bits on. I make it, and Tig loves, my daughter Tig loves her, her bachan's uh, takikomi gohan. Yeah. <laughs> and it's a great way to get vegetables in kids too because yes. it's like, they're all braised and seasoned. And, yeah, yeah, and they're yeah. like soft and they're mixing with the rice so yeah, you hardly yeah. like notice them. But mine, like, whenever I make it, is just not as good. And Tig knows. <laughs> You're from Wisconsin. Um, yeah. um, I, I, I don't know a lot about Wisconsin. I know, I know cheese curds. And I know fish yes. fries. And I know Kringles. 
Yeah. Um, oh, and Bratz, Bratwurst. I only know this because I, I have a friend that, that, who's also, and another friend who's from Wisconsin. Um, you don't but need all to of know this, much more than that. Is, is that it? <laughs> I mean, that's the greatest hits. <laughs> but yeah. but the, the thing about that is obviously, you know, your, your latest book is a vegan book. So right. uh, can, 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 you, uh, can we explore a bit more as to, to how that happened? Um, the, the last three books, Japanesey, Tokyo Stories, and Vegan Japanesey, have all basically been my publisher, Kate's idea. She suggested a vegetarian Japanese book. I am, I've never been vegetarian or, or vegan no. or anything like that, but it's something like a lot of people I've started thinking about more, and also that I kind of found myself eating in that way more because of the hours I was working at the restaurant, and I would mm. get home and not be able to cook anything. Don't so I was lie. On you, were, like, you were just eating crisps, don't lie. <laughs> <laughs> I was eating a lot of hummus. Oh, God. Like, like a lot of hummus. Okay. Because you could keep it in the fridge, and it was like a good fatty, proteiny, filling thing. But yeah, I, I wound up buying less and less fresh meat and fish because I never had a chance to cook it. So I'd either have to bin it or throw it in the freezer. Mm. Um, and anyway, became not at all vegan, but uh, more, I guess, what you might call flexitarian. Sure. And also, like, that's, I try to eat less meat and fish now anyway for mainly environmental reasons, like a lot of people are. So anyway, we were talking about that as a vegetarian idea and I just thought you know we may as well make it as inclusive as possible and also mm. because Japanese food is quite um, easy like there's already a lot of vegan recipes within it mm. and there's a lot that you can make vegan quite easily so I figured we may as well there is of course a, a big school of Japanese food called shojin ryori which is mm. uh, vegetarian or, or vegan which is the Buddhist temple cooking yeah um, and uh, that is sort of the place to start with a lot of vegan Japanese recipes. And I, I uh, learned a lot from reading about it, including like making mushroom dashi instead of a katsu dashi, mm. stuff like that. Yeah. Uh, and also just the importance and the deliciousness of vegetables and like how to cook them and keep their texture and their color and, their, and enhance their flavor. Yeah. Uh, but I found that like I couldn't really use those recipes because they're really um, connected to like bigger Buddhist concepts sure. of balance, spirituality, and, it is, and I like couldn't do justice to them. Is that because you were worried about treading on toes? It, it felt, yeah, it felt like um, not something that was, um, I didn't know enough about it to represent it accurately, basically. Sure. Like I cook what I might call what other people might call Japanese soul food, which are the big mm. kind of punchy, heartier dishes. Uh, that's the kind of food I've always sort of been most enthused about in Japanese food. Ramen, yeah, katsukuri, yeah. all these things, karage, um, anything with pork belly. <laughs> um, so that's... Do you, do you even make sushi? Have you ever... Is that something... That oh, God. Know? I mean, I have done it. Uh, it, it fills me with... Um, fear <laughs> because because sushi is something that you really really have to train uh and and practice for sure. for years to get it right and it's one of these things that if mm. you don't get it right it's just not good it's just not worth eating no. so whenever i do it i do it in very limited like for special events and i'm very careful <laughs> like when i do yeah. it so, so the vegan book was was your publisher's idea. Yeah, and the Tokyo book, and uh, and the first Japanese. You sound like you're blaming her. She's done a good job, I, am. I think. It's all her. <laughs> <laughs> 
Here's the thing. I don't have any kind of a commercial... Nows. Uh, <laughs> nows, that's the word, yeah. No, I don't. No. Um, I don't as a restaurateur. I don't as a cookbook author. Like, How are you still I, living? It's, it, it, it Basically, Laura's keeping you going. Is that it? <laughs> pretty much, yeah. <laughs> She's the breadwinner. You'd be a kept so man. You're, you're basically a reluctant, a reluctant everything, aren't you? Like, you, you ran away from social media. That was... <laughs> I started to feel like a few things. One on Twitter in particular, I felt like it, it was it brings out the worst in people sometimes, mm-hmm. often, including mm-hmm. me. I found myself like kind of being an asshole on Twitter in a way that I wouldn't want to be in real life, but because it was Twitter, it's kind of acceptable. It, it became like a source of stress and pressure. Mm-hmm. Like this is going to turn into a therapy session, <laughs> but like um, I. I was raised Catholic, and I also had, like, quite a vivid imagination when I was a kid. So, like, some little Catholic kids, you can tell them that, like, you're always being judged and God is watching you, and it it rolls off their back. It doesn't affect them. Me, I took that very, very seriously, (laughs) and I think it's kind of affected me to this day where I feel like I'm kind of always being watched and being judged. So, just massive Catholic guilt, basically. Right, right. And not just, it's almost like Catholic paranoia. Right. Um, I didn't know you were religious. I've known you so I'm not. Long. I'm not anymore. Okay. Um, but that stay has stayed with that, me. That stayed <clears throat> with you, unfortunately. Yeah. <laughs> and a lot of other things, like like the guilt, the shame, and all that. <laughs> but if you're prone to feeling like you're being judged all the yeah. time, anyway, mm-hmm. then social media just makes that worse because, sure. in a way, you are being judged. <laughs> like, it it was only ever me that was judging you. Don't worry. <laughs> of course. Well, I can take it from you. <laughs> ish <laughs> but anyway that's why okay. i kind of yeah so I, you, you switched I off because to, of that i switched off twitter permanently and i think that's for the best and, and instagram just as a break but now i'm back and i'm actually starting to see instagram as a much more positive place now it doesn't really give me satisfaction to put my own stuff out there and say like it or not you know mm. but i do like promoting like uh showcasing other what other people are doing I suppose, mm. like if something I think is really cool, like this guy Chris who does the sushi. Yeah, I was like, I should put this on Instagram because this is amazing. Mm. And then it's not about me, you know. And it's no. a problem if it's about me. First of all, I told people to go to vote if they're American, get their absentee ballots in. Yeah. Um, and then yeah, and then you know, share what other people are doing. It's politics is something I obviously really care about, and a lot of people do. But it's also something that, like, um, I've I've often felt kind of powerless to affect, mm. uh, especially for like the past, you know, four years in America, the past ten years here, mm. where it felt like my voice and the voice of so many other people have has just not registered. It's not mattered. It's being ignored. Mm-hmm. It's not loud enough. So what the hell can I do? But then I realized, well, I might not be able to do anything, but I got to try where I can. And so, exactly. like, this post about voting in particular was because it, where I'm registered in Wisconsin, you have to get an American witness to sign your um, ballot. Oh, wow. Which I figured, yeah, if there's other people in London, other American expats, uh, we don't all know each other. Like, we might, <laughs> that might be a hard thing to arrange for some Americans. So I, I put it out there, like, if you need this... I'm an American. Come find me. I'd be happy to sign your ballot. Oh, if wow. you vote for Biden, I said. But sure, sure, like... sure. <laughs> In terms of thinking that your voice doesn't count and so what's the point? 
maybe you have a certain amount of privilege maybe that you feel that you can switch off a little bit in that way uh, to opt out of these things is a privilege but i also i this is the thing it, it, i wasn't sort of opting out because i felt pressure i suppose and and I didn't have the ability to deal with it. Like I didn't so it, feel it's more like of I was a self-care thing. It's not even that. It's more like it is that. It's it's self-care, but it's also like it becomes a lot like it, it, you start to you do start to feel like responsible for a lot, I think. Um and and then and that became hard for me to deal with, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Uh and I, and I know that like some people people of color like trans people they're dealing with this shit every day and they can't just say i'm not going to deal with this for now Mm. um so it is definitely a privilege but like i've also learned that i can do things sort of off social media in my daily life as well Mm -hmm. um and again like it's never enough no and it, it it does make me feel a bit better to do some things whether it's, I don't know, donating to charity, getting the word about voting, like, whatever. What my One of my big sort of political peeves or issues is wealth inequality. And I think it's terrible how we have these this abundance of wealth, basically, that it's concentrated among a handful of billionaires, multimillionaires, and corporations. Mm. When so many people are struggling. And so I've voted and uh, campaigned for universal basic income. Like I donated mm. to Andrew Yang's campaign in America and I signed petitions and things like that. Mm. Try to get the word out about that because I think that's a big, for me, that's a big thing. Mm. And it's, it's, it's a long shot. Like I don't think it's going to happen anytime soon. But then I realized, wait a minute, if wealth redistribution is the issue, mm. I can actually do something about that in my daily life as a business owner in a couple of ways like here are the examples i can put prices up at my restaurant Mm -hmm. and either take money from those sales and give to charity Mm -hmm. or pay my staff more Mm -hmm. because i'm always very price conscious running the restaurant like i don't want Mm -hmm. to charge a lot i don't want to take the piss and also you can't like if you're in a capitalist society like you have to compete with the next guy and if they're selling Mm -hmm. ramen or beer for cheaper then you're going to be in trouble um but i figured look if people if we have the kind of customers who are coming here and spending 13 pounds in a bowl of ramen, they can pay 14 pounds as well. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like they have that extra pound. I know that. And that can make a difference over time mm-hmm. uh, to support a local charity or our staff. You know, people who have privileged white people, whoever's on top, who's got money. I think we do have an obligation mm-hmm. to help out. Mm-hmm. What help that or what form that help takes, like, that's kind of, that's for people to decide, Mm. I think, what works for them. As you say, I think so long as, so long as you're engaging in some way, so, you know, I'm not saying that you have to be, and I don't mean you personally, but I don't think people have to be on social media, and I know a lot of people don't, don't use or understand it, and that's absolutely fine, but I think it's, 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 you know, being engaged in what's happening around you, and, and understanding that, it's the drip, drip effect, I think, if you just keep at it, 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 it's cumulative, right? It adds up. So, yeah, I will say, like on the subject of social media, like um, there's been a lot of debate lately about, like, you know, what should you do on social media to help fight injustice? And it's like, mm. 
Mm-hmm. You know, you don't want to be performative, but you also don't want to do nothing. Like, ah, but that, and I that's, always think about actually. Don't let your white fragility talk, then. <laughs> no, 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 no. <laughs> but um, you know, I think a lot of people are a little bit sort of unsure of, of how to use social media, yeah, and 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 also how little or how much to use. Yeah, I'm, I'm quite ambivalent about like, you know, what good I guess social media is for this. I think it is good, obviously, if you're using it. Like you say, to sort of get the word out in this sort of drip drip effect. Yeah. But it's not that it's not where it ends. You know what I mean? Oh no, not at all. But I think yeah. I mean from my point of view, obviously, as you know, someone who doesn't have any kind of platform apart from on social media. Right. I think for for people like me, you know, for other kind of minorities, it is probably the only outlet we have to get our message out or to you know to get out whatever we want to to share, whatever kind of points we want to make. So I think it is incredibly. You know, it's yeah. You know the amount of shit I get on social media, but you know it's not. Yeah, I don't know that how I, you. I don't know how you stay there. To be I, I, I don't. I don't <clears throat> you know, it, it, it's something that kind of does my head in. But on the other hand, I feel like I have a responsibility. You know, to to myself, to my family, to my children, and just you know, I I can use my words in some way to help. And I've I've had people actually say to me, so kind of, you know, other minorities say to me that thank you for voicing stuff that they want to voice but they don't know how mm. and I also have a lot of I have a lot of white people messaging me saying thank you for explaining because you know yeah. they didn't understand and and yeah, for yeah, that yeah. reason alone I kind of feel like okay there is a point to this because as, as you say otherwise I would feel like I was just pissing into the sea yeah this is the thing about I guess me in particular is I'm I don't want to co-opt other people's voices like I don't mm. I don't feel necessarily comfortable saying what I feel like a person of color should say mm-hmm. um, in their own words and with their own voice, which I know having saying that said that like it, it doesn't make me a very good ally because I think sometimes like the messages that need to be get at that, that need to get out there are like they're better received coming from a white person. They are. And that's a problem. Yeah. And that's the thing that I complain about on a daily basis the fact that if it was coming from me it's going to be received very differently from if right. it's coming from you you know yeah um, even even okay so here's here's a, here's a very very good example and uh, you know it goes back to the name of this whole podcast yeah know, it's the msg pod so yeah you, know, it, you you <laughs> saying that you like msg that you use msg is an entirely different impact and reaches an entirely different audience than if, you know, me. Okay, so here's the thing. I, th- and we, we've talked about this before. You have mm. a lot more, um, uh, I suppose, drive or like, uh, <laughs> what's what's the word? Like, you don't give up as easy as me. <laughs> like, <laughs> I often have felt like I'm pissing into the, the sea because, yeah. like, I've been going on about MSG for years and yeah. katsu curry yeah. and like all these kinds of misconceptions about Japanese food. Yeah. And it it it's it hasn't worked. Like people still think MSG it, it is bad. It does though. And this is the thing this is, this, this is the thing that you won't believe from me. It does work. And it infuriates me and also in in some ways because the whole point is that it, it it the fact that I need a white ally to kind of augment what I'm saying to kind of mm. 
kind of be the person that's sharing what I'm saying, it infuriates me because I want people to listen to yeah. me, not not to listen to you because you happen to be not me, you know? That annoys me too, by the way. Like, <laughs> this is the thing, and I guess this is going back to privilege. It's like, I feel like I shouldn't have to say this. Like, just no. listen to the Asian person. Like, no, I know, but... Not, but you know? Okay, so... This, even even on the kind of like, I was talking about this with Hung. So, you know, obviously Hung and I are both married to white men. Mm. Um, and just like on a kind of a really basic level, we it, it's kind of a, a joke that we kind of put our husbands forward to do stuff like, you know, answer <laughs> the door, you know, yeah, or yeah, yeah, kind of yeah. talk to customer services. Yeah. Because th- we've had such bad experiences and have been so burned as being the person being dealt with and you know obviously i don't know whether that's because people are misogynistic or whether they're racist or what but or both both. but the fact is is that you know i have this white ally within my actual family which is really handy but also again like i say infuriating kind of going back to the whole white fragility thing as well i i've had people message me saying they really want to support me saying this or they really want to kind of talk about this issue but they're afraid because they're white they might get accused of virtue signaling when they say that i i have invariably messaged these people back and said get over it right Mm. (laughs) because it shouldn't be that the the fact that you're worried that you're going to be mocked or called out or whatever that shouldn't be more of a, a barrier than the fact that you could be assisting other people and one of the reasons that i keep quiet sometimes is because yeah. i am aware of my own like uh role in all of this that i'm not entirely like i have racism within me like everybody does and even though i may be anti-racist like yeah. I- i'm part of the system uh and i have an upbringing and everything yeah. I-, I know i have my own flaws with regards to this and my yeah. own prejudices i feel a bit like hypocritical, I suppose, uh, calling other people out, for example. Um, so that's what gives me hesitation. Like I should probably just get over that too. You should. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but like if I say, hey, that's racist, I'm just waiting for somebody to come around. Like it's it's another Catholic thing maybe. It's, right. Have you heard the expression, let he who is without sin cast the cast first stone? Cast the first stone, yeah. Right. I was about to so say I'm that. like, I'm holding this stone and I'm like, wait a minute. <laughs> Like, I'm implicated in all of this, is the thing. Like, well, so you are and you aren't. I mean, I, 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 there's no point, and this is the Catholic guilt thing again, isn't it? There's no point beating yourself up about stuff that was beyond your control, you know, because it's, um, it's not just your upbringing, it's not just, sure. you, know, you, you know, it's education, you know, it's religion, it's, it's the whole world is built around, <laughs> you know, white supremacy, to put a too fine point about it, right? So, yeah, pretty much. And I don't mean that in the kind of KKK people wearing kind of masks. I just mean the fact that the yeah. white man is considered superior, right? Yep. Um, so, so. Yeah. yeah. But um, I think the fact that you've recognized you recognize that, and you know, you obviously acknowledge that in quite a in quite a big way, is 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 so much. You're so much beyond a lot of people, and. Well. There's always work to do. And there this, is, you know, there this, is. And, but but my point is, is that you're not perfect, but you're far from imperfect, if that makes any sense. Thanks. Um, <laughs> I want to say one thing since we're on this. Yeah. Um, I think we need to really seriously look at, like, just totally undoing capitalism. <laughs> like, um, <laughs> because you're right, the whole world is based on, is built on, on white supremacy and colonialism yeah. and all these horrible systems, but it's perpetuated by 
you know, late stage capitalism. So many of the inequalities that are sort of stuck mm. are an issue of, of money and, and, and ownership, I think. Mm-hmm. And like the whole thing just has to be taken down. Tear it down. Yeah. <laughs> like, and I feel like I feel like we're we're gonna keep having these same problems with race mm. until this happens. Mm-hmm. You know? Like, like it's almost like the racism is is a symptom and mm. uh, of the illness, which is capitalism. Yeah, that sounds really pretentious and stupid. Sorry, <laughs> <laughs> but I don't think you're wrong, though. I mean, you know, this is how it's been built up. It's, you know, it this. It's not that the system is broken. This is the system. I mean, this. It was meant to be yeah, like this. It was built exactly. to be like this, right? So it, it's meant to keep certain people in power and others yeah. out of it. Indeed. And it's a zero-sum game, and it's, yeah, um, and it's bullshit. It is bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> we've, got, we've ended up with the, us, us, us telling you all to become communists. <laughs> I, th- I often think of this as sort of like um, the, the, uh, the last throws. But like, like the dying <clears throat> empire, of, the dying Roman empire. Yeah, that's what I hope anyway. I'm, I'm hoping that this is like... <laughs> A sort of reactionary resurgence in uh, conservatism yeah. uh, that will be, yeah, like it's sort of death lurch and then it'll yeah. be over. That's what I'm hoping anyway. I mean, that's fine. I just don't want all of us to be taken down with us. So. Yeah. We'll see. So that was Tim Anderson, who is the chef owner at Namban London. If you do want to get hold of him, like he said, he's pretty active on Instagram still at Chef Tim Anderson and on Namban London. He also has a Facebook page, but he does not use Twitter anymore. Um, and his latest book is Vegan Japanesey, and it's out now. Yeah, it was quite interesting how um, you and Tim uh, sort of concluded that capitalism needs to be torn down considering he's a business owner. I know. It was very interesting that he went down that route and quite unexpected. I guess that's one of the issues because everyone's trying to make a living and it's trying to balance that out with social responsibility, right? And he's obviously come to the conclusion that capitalism is the issue, as you and I already have. <laughs> we're, not, we're not business owners. Yeah. But, I, you know, I thought, I thought it was good and what he was saying about um, being a responsible owner and even, like, how he prices things and knowing how some uh things he can put an extra pound on because the customers that come into his restaurant could absorb that and then he can then um either donate give that money to a charity or you know share it amongst his stuff which i thought was pretty cool actually you know he sounds like a cool boss no no exactly i think it's pretty cool and maybe other people feel the same way but i was genuinely very pleasantly surprised by that I mean, you guys have been friends for a while, haven't you? Yeah, so ironically, the first time we met was 2011 when he won MasterChef, one of the early series of the reboot, and I interviewed him for my blog at the time. But what I did find interesting was about how he sort of talked about uh, stepping away from Twitter and uh, when you were talking of a little bit about having white allies. And my immediate thought was, you know, obviously we're married, or I'm married to, to David, who's white, um, and how he is my ally. But also, on a really practical point of view, 
Sometimes I make him answer the door when I order a takeaway because I'm ashamed. Like sometimes if I order a Chinese takeaway, I'll get him to answer the door because I'm ashamed. You're ashamed. <laughs> but shame that I've ordered a Chinese takeaway. Oh no. And if and then I should know how I should basically I'm I'm ashamed in case the it's the owner or somebody related to the business will uh, deliver deliver the takeaway and then see me and think, Well you should be cooking this yourself at home, you know. You see, whereas like if if David if yeah if David answers the door it's okay because he's white so he can't cook this stuff. Whereas if I you know if I'm ordering you know a prawn charmaine I should know how to make this stuff you know instead of <laughs> you know ordered it. So yeah, that's what I do with with David's white privilege. I push him out front and uh, make him open the door when I've ordered a Chinese takeaway. That reminds me of something I saw where people were saying that the silver lining about the whole pandemic is. Uh, ordering delivery and takeaway and all that kind of thing is you're helping the economy and you're helping businesses. It's not that you're lazy or incompetent to do yeah, it for yourself. Yeah, we're doing it for the economy. That's, that's good. It's good. You know, it, um, yeah. This was the MSG pod with Mimi A and Hone Black. The theme tune is by David Black and was produced by Vellum Hill. Tune in next time when our special guest will be the psychologist Kimberly Wilson.